Our scripture today is from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she, that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I think I was about nine years old, and uh, I was at church, and uh, we were um, singing the final hymn, and if you've heard me talk about my, the church of my upbringing, then you'll know that it was a big, the equivalent of a mega church in Wales, but without band and with big pipe organ, okay? So it was a unique sort of a mega church. We don't see a lot of those here. Um, but I was at church and we'd sung, you know, the final hymn to close off the service. Um, and it was the big pipe organ. It's the same hymn every week. And I was trying to remember it. And I wrote to my family on Messenger. And I was like, what's that hymn that we always closed off every service with? And they were, and my brother wrote, Lead me, Lord. And I was like, yeah, lead me, Lord. And as soon as he said, lead me, Lord, I had it in my mind, and it goes something like this. No, it goes exactly like this. I remember it, because when you sing a song every week for years, um, you know, then you know it, and it goes like this. Lead me, Lord, lead me in thy righteousness, make thy way plain before my face, and so on and, and so forth. There's, there's a second verse, but uh, that's not pertinent to the story. Um, so we then left our wooden pews, and 800 people uh, filed out of church through the big uh, yeah, the doors at the end of the sanctuary, because that's how it was then, and we went out onto a city street um, lined with cars in Cardiff, Wales. Uh, then we walked down the little side street where we paralleled our park, parallel parked our car. Everyone in Wales has to know how to parallel park, and uh, and and then we drove the 20 minutes home to our house in Brimpin Wothin, um, in a in a uh, housing estate or in a s- subdivision. And as we were driving through the, um, through the suburbs and the streets of Cardiff, our anticipation was growing because we knew what was heading our way. And so at home, we pile out the car, me, uh, my sister Gemini, and my brother Chris, and my parents, and then we walk in the front door. And as we walk in the front door, our noses are greeted by the most powerful smell. Um, It's a good smell because it kicks our salivary glands into overload and uh, and it's this special smell and I can bring it to mind right now and it's eau de Sunday lunch. 
Okay, you, you, you walk in and all you can smell is the Sunday lunch. It's the roast beef, the roast potatoes, the gravy, the stuffing, the carrots, the peas, uh, the parsnips. Not such a big fan of that. Sprouts, I enjoyed those, uh, but it was lots of fun later, of course. Uh, and then we had um, stuffing and, and uh, it's been slow roasting in the oven for the couple of hours that we've been out of the house. And so, you know... And so you walk in the house and you literally cannot miss the smell and you wouldn't want to because in my humble opinion, and as the one with the mic, it's the only one that matters right now, uh, Sunday lunch is probably one of the best smells in the world. You're welcome, mum. Actually, Dad, he was the one that usually m- made it. It was, uh, it was wonderful. Um, week one in our series, uh, our Lent series on pressing on through, as, as you know, we're going through the revised common lectionary, and uh, we looked at um, pressing on through the desert from Luke chapter 4, 1 to 13, then week chapter 2, um, or week two, we learned how Jesus pressed on so that we can press in. And uh, we talked about Jesus as our mother hen. And uh, Luke 13, 31 to 35 paints this image very, very powerfully. Uh, week three, we learned about how the temple massacre and the tower falling and the parable of the fig tree all combined to show us that rather than judging others by their sin, God judges us or rather than us judging others by their sin, uh, we should recognize that God judges us according to our fruitfulness. And then last week, it was the story of the uh, lost sons and this incredible invitation from the Father to press on home, whether we're in the far country of self-indulgence or we're in the far field of self-righteousness, that um, invitation is there for all of us. And this morning, we're now relocating from uh, the Gospel of John to... Uh, from the Gospel of Luke over to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, with this idea of of, um, pressing on to pour ourselves out. And as it says here, Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 1, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering unto God. So what does it mean for us to pour ourselves out? Let's turn to our text, John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So there's tons of facts in this short verse that help us to place this incident, the, the, the when and the where and the who. The when is six days before Passover, uh, so which means that this is happening less than a week before Jesus' execution um, on the cross. Um, and, and we're told a few verses earlier in the end of John chapter 11 that tons of Jews have been pouring into Jerusalem from all over the country uh, ready for the Passover. So they're moving in, you know, they're finding their hotels, you know, they're, um, you know, they're meeting up with their friends. All of this is happening. It's a hustle and a bustle. It's quite exciting. Um, and then, and standing where we are, knowing that... Um, Jesus is going to die in less than a week. I want us to keep that in our mind because as we uh, read and listen to um, uh, um, especially Judas and Mary and and what they say, um, it kind of adds extra poignancy to that. Now, 
Judas is mentioned just one time in the first half of in the first half of John, right? He, he's hardly featured at all. Uh, and yet from here on in, between chapter 12 and chapter 18, just six chapters, Judas is referenced 10 times. So the role that Judas plays from this moment on exponentially increases, but we'll hear more about Judas later. But like I said, it's six days before the Passover and Jesus arrives in the town of Bethany, uh, which is about three kilometers from Jerusalem, okay, which is like the distance from the one Tim Hortons in Kempville to the other Tim Hortons in Kempville. Because, of course, a town like Kempville needs two Tim Hortons, right? So it's not very far, and it's a straight run from this little town of Bethany over to, over to, to Jerusalem along what's known as the Jericho Road, okay? So that's what the map looks like. And this is where Lazarus lives with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. We meet Lazarus for the first time just one chapter earlier in chapter 11, uh, and he's a corpse, He's not alive, and, uh, and, and we find out that his death brings Jesus, you know, to tears. He is, he is upset, and so that's where we have the shortest verse in the Bible, which is, Jesus wept. Yes, memorize that and pat yourself on the back. Uh, so what else is it that we know about this household? Well, in Luke's, um, in Luke's gospel, there's also this account of Jesus at Lazarus's house where Martha is working hard and Mary sat at Jesus's feet. Martha's getting frustrated by her sister, but Jesus sides with Mary. Um, so this is our context. We know what the when is. It's six days before Passover. We know where. It's in the little town of Bethany, and we know the who. It's Lazarus and his family. But what about the what? Uh, here's the what. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Now, I love this because we're in this moment, like I said, just one week before the death of Christ, and those who are closest to Jesus are honoring him, right? They're doing something special for him. They're throwing him a party. Now, we don't have the entire guest list, but there most likely would have been some or all of the disciples, including Judas, as well as Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, we can uh, probably widen that list from the gospel, from the other gospel accounts. You know, it may have been Simon the leper was was there. But but this morning, I just want to uh, limit ourselves to John's account. So let's look at each of Jesus' table companions as he's, as he's kind of leaning there on the floor. You know, it, it wasn't a high table like we would understand. It was a table on the floor. And as he sat around that with his friends, let's look at them as John lists them. Now, first of all, there's Martha. And John chapter 12, verse 2, simply tells us that Martha served, which is not a surprise, right? Martha reminds me of Liam Neeson, right? It seems like every time Liam Neeson is in a movie, he's playing the same character every time. Someone who's noble, someone who has a good moral compass, who's trying to right some sort of wrongs, and he may or may not have a, a particular set of skills, right? So, so Liam Neeson is the same in every movie, and I feel that Martha is absolutely typecast, um, 
uh, you know, as that faithful hard worker who maybe needs to get in touch with her spiritual side a little more than she is. But she doesn't know how to. All she knows is how to serve. And so Martha served. And so if Martha is the busy bee serving and wanting to make everyone happy, you know, the, t- uh, the typical people pleaser, then Lazarus seems to be the socializer, right? Uh, verse 2, while Lazarus was, a, was among those reclining at the table with him. Martha served while Lazarus was at the table, um, among those reclining at the table with him. Right, Lazarus is loving this new lease of life that he has, and he's trying to get as much face time with the rabbi who literally brought him back from the dead. He was, he was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. And Martha serving God or serving Jesus is good, and Lazarus socializing with Jesus is also good, right? You know, the Bible is full of this idea that the life of faith is one of socializing with Jesus, of being with him, and also serving him. Both of these are absolutely important. Uh, So Martha served, Lazarus socialized, but Mary, what did she do? Well, she did something else. She sacrificed. Verse 3, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Last week, we looked at the parable of the lost sons, and I explained how I always misunderstood the word prodigal, thinking it meant repentant or maybe coming home, something like that. But actually, as we found out last week, which was a surprise to me, but probably most of you already know it, that the, that the word prodigal means wasteful or extravagant, um, the wasteful son. And this morning we see another instance of prodigalness, of prodigality, of wastefulness, of, out, out, of outrageousness demonstrated in Mary's response to Jesus. There is, what we see here in this verse is zero self-control. There's no reading the room here. It's embarrassing. She's pouring out perfume on Jesus' feet and then rubbing his feet with her hair, which just feels weird. Right? When we were in the Middle East on missions... The women missionaries couldn't go out with wet hair or loose hair because in that culture, it signaled if they had wet hair and they went out, it signaled that they'd been up to something that should be confined to the bedroom and that's why they had wet hair. Okay, so, so there was a strong symbolic link there. And in this ancient Near East culture, um, there's this respectable woman you know, as far as we know, she's, she's respectable. And she's getting all touchy and feely with the rabbi. And not just the rabbi, but his feet, the symbolically dirty part of him that only the servants, the lowest slaves should have touched. And she's there getting all up in his toes. And there's perfume involved. You see, I learned that the nard... Um, yeah, the perfume that she poured out on Jesus' feet was imported probably from India. 
far, far away. It was a luxury item. We're not talking Amazon Prime, get here in a couple of days. This is expensive stuff. Judas himself says later on that this is worth a year's wages. Can you imagine being at a meal and someone spills a bottle of expensive perfume on someone else's feet and then they're wiping their feet with their hair? I could imagine that people literally didn't know where to look. If that happened here right now, it would be embarrassing. There's, this, uh, there's a perfumer called um, Roger Dove. I thought I, I saw this and I was like, how do you say it? It looks so exotic. Roja or Roja. But no, I listened to interviews and he's, he's a Brit and he's like, Roger. That's how you say it. Roger Dove. So uh, anyway, there's this perfumer called Roger Dove and he has a perfume called Roger Oat Looks. Stacy told me how to pronounce that. And according to Town and Country Mag, Oat Looks, this uh, this perfume is stuffed to the brim with rose, jasmine, and lang lang, and grounded with earthy, spicy, ever-evolving base notes of ginger, cinnamon, clove, patchouli, wood, resins, and ambergris. A fresh batch of oat looks is whipped up every year and limited to 500 bottles. So if you're looking for a Valentine's Day present or I've got my anniversary coming up soon, this might be an idea, except that one bottle costs a cool $3,500 US. And to make, but, but to make fragrance that sells at this level must mean that Roger Dove knows what he's talking about. And here's what Roger says about the power of smells. He says this, I think what I love about fragrance is that it takes us away from the often mundane reality of our everyday lives, right? The sense of smell is a powerful thing, particularly when it's connected with a memory. You smell a fragrance or an odor or a perfume or an aroma and you're taken away from the mundane reality of your life to a special, a hopefully special moment in the past. Maybe um, it's, a, uh, it's a summer grassy meadow or it's a warm living room with a wood stove or, uh, it's, it's a, or it's a rainstorm maybe in a tropical country or the smell of your mother's baking or your favorite local coffee shop or Sunday lunch when you were nine, right? The sense of smell is powerful. And I don't think that it's an accident that the Bible uh, records some version of this account with this extravagant outpouring of aroma in all four of the Gospels, right? Matthew talks about it, Mark talks about it, Luke talks about it, John talks about it. Now, I'm never going to buy Roger Dove's oat looks uh, fragrance, right? Because I don't have a spare 3,500 lying around, even after tax season's done. But if I did, if I did have an oat looks, I would use it sparingly. But, so now imagine, if someone walked up and cracked open a perfume bottle that didn't cost $3,500, but actually cost $65,000. That's how much nard cost in today's terms. That's how much the, 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 uh, the average Canadian earns in 2021. 
And then that person heads over to, let's say, Nathan, because he's about Jesus' age, and then they chug the bottle of nard right here, right now, over Nathan's feet, in the middle of worship. Do you think that any of us would ever forget that moment, that smell, that aroma, that extravagant outpouring? Of course not. The, the smell of Indian nard would have been indelibly etched in the olfactory memory of everyone present around the table. You know, maybe 15 years later, they, they're walking in the street and they pass a newly married couple and they catch a whiff of the nard as they walk past. Hey, do you remember that time when we were in Bethany and we were sat around the table and Mary poured you know, the perfume over Jesus', Jesus feet. Do you remember that? The nard should have been used sparingly for fancy dinners uh, or for royalty, you know, for the cream of society. And it should have been put on the head as a celebration. It was a luxury, something used for the wedding night, as Song of Songs says, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates. Again, if you're looking for things for a Valentine's Day card, here you are. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits and henna and nard. Nard, it's said twice, and saffron, calamus, and cinnamon with every kind of incense tree with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. But Mary sloshes it out, not on Jesus' head, but on Jesus' feet, because in those days, uh, the, um, the, it was the anointing of the feet that began the preparation for the burial of the corpse. So Mary was honoring Jesus for the death that he would suffer in less than a week. The preparation had begun. So there was Martha who served, there was Lazarus who socialized, there was Mary who sacrificed, and now Judas. Well, what does he do? Judas sensibilizes. That's not a word, but it is now. And it refers to anyone who reduces anything to the lowest common denominator being, does this make sense? Any situation they ask whether this makes sense or not. So Mary does this incredible sacrifice, and then Judas immediately pulls out the calculator and sensibilizes this act. He reigns on her parade in a very powerful way. But... One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Now, there's not much to say here because John really says it all. But what we have here is Judas, who was one of the disciples. So probably, you know, we should respect him, who was later to betray Jesus. Okay, let's revisit that whole idea of respecting him. And uh, he objected because he was a crook, right? So, but if, we, if, if we're honest and we're in that room with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and maybe Simon the leper and... Um, you know, Judas, you know, and the rest of the disciples, probably Judas would have been the one that we look to and listen to. Mary, she was an awkward outlier with zero social skills and appalling financial acuity. But Judas, he could be trusted. 
He was the money man. He, he literally carried around the money box from which Jesus would take money to help people in need. Judas was good people. And his maths holds up to scrutiny. We would have agreed with Judas, most likely. Like, really, Mary, what are you doing? How can making an overwhelming sweet smell for a few minutes be more important than feeding the poor and the hungry? And friends, how easy is it for us to minimize or to ridicule or explain away or mock an act of sacrifice that someone is doing for Jesus when we don't understand it? How easy is it from our comfy seats to say, that's not what worship looks like. That's not the right way to serve God. Don't go overseas and become a missionary. There's work here that has to be done. Don't overextend yourself to Jesus. Don't give more to the church or to, you know, um, maybe parachurch organizations than you can make back at the end of the tax season. Don't You shouldn't do that. That's silly. That's not good mathematics. Don't do anything to embarrass yourself, even if you think that God is leading yourself that way, because God wouldn't ask you to do that, because God is a God of order. God is a God of equations and mathematics. Mathematics comes out of who he is. God is glorified when we're controlled and calm and sensible, when we're Canadian, when we are British. And we can end up so finely measuring our so-called quote-unquote acts of worship, our acts of sacrifice, that we end up treating God like an investment opportunity. I will only give if I know I'm going to get something back, just like Judas, when he, I'm sure he gave, but he also took from the money pot And he looked good at the same time. But Mary, she just dumps it all out on Jesus' feet like an idiot in a fit of love and adoration. And Judas doesn't know what, he doesn't know how to compute it. He's like a computer that's malfunctioning at this moment. And just over a week later, Judas hangs himself after selling Jesus out. You know, for Judas... Jesus ended up being worth 30 pieces of silver. But Mary, but, but for Mary, Jesus was so valuable that the only way she could come close to expressing his value was with a $65,000 foot bath. 30 pieces of silver versus a $65,000 foot bath. And Jesus' response is really telling. He says, Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, again, this is one of these things that you wish Jesus would elaborate a little bit because this sounds a bit like mean Jesus. But, of course, Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't give to the poor. He lived among the poor. He helped the poor. He was poor. Uh, Judas's job was to feed the poor. But Jesus is saying that you cannot nickel and dime an act of worship that at least tries to express how much Jesus is worth. Because even if it is foolhardy or wasteful uh, in the eyes of the world, to him it means something. And he says, leave them alone, leave her alone. We don't need more Judases, but we do need more Marys. So where do you place yourself at the table? 
Maybe the first question is, are you even at the table? Maybe this morning you think, well, I'd love to enjoy Jesus' presence, but he wouldn't enjoy mine. I'm not the kind of person Jesus wants sat around the table. I don't want to make things awkward. I don't want to be the one that everyone looks at and says, you invited them? Friends, if this is you, then I invite you to remember part of last week's texts, which read, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The outcasts of society were welcomed into Jesus' presence. He loved being with them. He, there was no place that he'd rather be than spending time with losers. And I've said this before, but we have to remember that it is your sin that is your very qualification for coming into the presence of God. Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus welcomes sinners. Maybe you need to hear that again. Jesus welcomes sinners. He doesn't put up with them. He doesn't barely control his disgust. He welcomes them. You have a place at the table through Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus opened the door for a fellowship with you so that you can have a homecoming like we heard in that song. As a sinner, you are Jesus' preferred company. Imagine that, that you are Jesus' preferred company. If he had the choice between a penthouse suite on a round-the-world cruise or spending an hour in your company, he would choose you each and every time. And so maybe this is the morning that you can go up to the table of fellowship with Jesus by turning from your sin and placing your full trust in him. And he will stand up, he will pull that chair out, and he will welcome you to sit down, and he will, and he will, he will, he will put all the food out on the table for you. And once you sit down at that table, you then look around and realize what a varied and weird crew Jesus keeps around him, like Martha, right? Maybe this morning you're, you're a Martha. You serve, you're busy, you're involved, and that's good. That's not a bad thing, but neither is it the best thing, right? Jesus says this to the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance, and yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Service is a good thing, but it's not the best thing. Maybe this morning you're a Lazarus, you're, uh, you're the sociable. Jesus has done miracles in your life and you've encountered him. He's brought you from death to life and you have stories and all you want to do is sit around the table with Jesus and to listen to him. And friends, if this is you, then that's good. That's not a bad thing, but neither is it the best thing. Or maybe this morning you're a Judas. You're the voice of reason. You're the one that people listen to and you make sense. All of this airy-fairy spiritual stuff is all well and good, but ultimately it comes down to the brass tacks. And friend, if this is you, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but neither is it the best thing, because sometimes, like Judas, a facade of responsibility uh, or even concern from others can hide a heart that has another agenda, one that struggles with secret sin or with greed or with selfishness, with a lack of faith. So whether you're a Martha who loves to serve or a Mary uh, or, or a Lazarus who loves to socialize or a Judas who has a passion for sensibilizing faith in Jesus, our Lord invites us all to take a long, hard look at awkward Mary. 
You see, the Marthas among us want Mary to help. And the Lazaruses among us want Mary to sit down and take a load off. And the Judases among us want Mary to stop this embarrassing display and pull ourselves together. But friends, when someone encounters the living Christ, just like Mary did, when someone sees Jesus work miracles in their life, like Mary did, when someone understands the cross and the price that Jesus paid, there are no words. And maybe you're not pouring out $65,000 worth of perfume on Jesus' feet because you don't understand the price that he paid and what he went through. Because if we did, there would only be embarrassing extravagance. And this world needs to witness the sacrifice of Mary more than it needs the service of Martha. And this world needs to witness the sacrifice of Mary more than it needs to witness the socializing, social fellowship of Lazarus. And this world needs to witness the sacrifice of Mary more than it needs the sensible wisdom of Judas. This world needs people like Mary because Marys take all that they have and they pour it out on the feet of Jesus. They waste their lives for the glory of Christ. They pour everything out in a shameless display of utter wastefulness, of prodigalness. And it's uncomfortable, but it cannot be ignored. This world can ignore service and socializing and sensibleness, but it's hard to ignore sacrifice. Because sacrifice makes no sense. A life that is poured out sacrificially in the cause of Christ is like a perfume being spread around. It spreads everywhere. It becomes part of the atmosphere. It's a waste. Let's admit it. It's a waste, but it's the best kind of waste. Because whether you like it or not, you cannot ignore it. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And so as we move into our last song I want us to take two minutes in uh, listening prayer. And so the assumption here is that, is that Jesus speaks and uh, that he has something to say to you. And so the one question, as we, as we pause, as we don't quickly move on to the next thing, I want us to take two minutes and I want us to ask us this question. Okay, ask him this question. Expect an answer. Jesus, without worrying if it makes sense to others, How can I pour out my love to you without worrying if it makes sense to others? How can I pour out my love to you? Let's take two minutes and just listen to what Jesus says to to us.